This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. A lot of money is being raised and spent in Michigan on all sorts of races from top to bottom beginning last year. And, of course, we've got a presidential primary coming up on March 10th, so it's really kicked into high gear. And we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Simon Schuster, who is executive director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. Simon Schuster, welcome to the Political Insider. Thanks. Great to be here, Bill. Let me ask you, uh, Simon, explain what is the Michigan Campaign Finance Network so our listeners will understand the important work that you people do. Sure. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit that's dedicated to shining a light on the influence of money in Michigan politics. That comes from one investigative reporting, and the other portion of what we do is outreach to Michiganders, teaching them how they can uh, hold their own elected officials accountable uh, through looking at campaign finance records. So let me ask you, what have you seen recently or in the last maybe half a year or whatever uh, in terms of trends or things that people ought to be aware of that's going on with campaign finance in Michigan? Yeah. So in terms of the upcoming presidential primary, obviously the major story is Michael Bloomberg and the way in which he has blanketed Michigan airwaves with advertisements. Uh, You know, as a billionaire self-funded candidate, he has thrown more money on Michigan airwaves than the entire uh, presidential primary uh, yield from 2016 combined. He has spent about $12 million running wow. ads nearly 40,000 times. Or I'm sorry, 19,000 times. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, and so, I mean, do you, do you think, I mean, do the voters, I mean, they obviously are seeing the ads and all this sort of thing, and this money is being spent. Do you think voters are reassured that this is money from a single individual? They know where it's coming from, and that is better for most voters. They like uh, the sound of that. They're reassured by that compared to so-called dark money that gets into politics where huge sums are raised and spent. Maybe it's on ballot proposals, maybe it's for candidates, but somehow maybe it comes through a nonprofit or some arcane financial structure, and we don't know who really is contributing the money. Well, one of the difficulties that we see in uh, ways in which um, individuals can discern the origin of the funding for these advertisements is that it's getting increasingly difficult to uh, determine where this money is coming from. And that's in large part because campaigns are making available things like stock footage of their candidates to dark money organizations who are funding them. Uh, there's been a couple million dollars spent on the uh, Senate race so far from uh, dark money organizations such as the Vote Vex Action Fund, who are supporting Senator Gary Peters. And they're using uh, stock footage provided by his campaign. So, you know, there's footage of him riding a motorcycle, meeting with constituents. The thing is, uh, they, by law, can't coordinate with his campaign at all. And it becomes more difficult for individuals to understand, you know, whether this is something that was approved by the candidates or uh, from that respect from that perspective, uh, I mean, that, the, that uh, they worked with the campaign on. 
when in fact they didn't. And so I think that um, from that perspective, Bloomberg, uh, you know, while it's perhaps reassuring that they can hear at the end of the uh, advertisement, I'm Mike Bloomberg and I approve this message, I think it's increasingly tough for people to really understand where this money's coming from. Right. Uh, in the case of Mike Bloomberg, we're going to have a real test case, aren't we, uh, Simon Schuster, after the votes are counted on March 10th, whether money really works. Because remember, Mike Bloomberg has not competed in any state yet, and he won't be on the ballot in South Carolina Saturday this weekend. Uh, he's going to be on the ballot for the first time on what is called Super Tuesday this coming Tuesday, March 3rd. Third, and then, of course, he'll be in Michigan, and he's spending this enormous amount here. And so his presence really is just getting off the ground in terms of confronting the voters and giving them a chance to make a decision about him. And we're going to find out whether the money really has an impact here or not. Do you think that Mike Bloomberg has a good chance to win in Michigan just based on his spending? Well, I think that we've seen from national poll results and uh, the fact that he's on the debate stage now that uh, money can buy exposure. Which, when you're in a field that's multiple candidates, hasn't really consolidated himself, being able to make a first impression, having the money to open field offices, get volunteers on the ground, contacting people through the mail, uh, even in person and via text message, it can make a positive first impression. And in a crowded field, that can matter a lot, especially in the primary. And uh, I think that this is sort of an uh, unprecedented um, sort of appearance. I mean, when you contrast that with the president and uh, the way he fielded his campaign, I know that in 2016 he claimed to be self-funded. While that's no longer the case, um, he sort of did not have this elaborate organization that Michael Bloomberg has, whereas he's sort of fighting an uphill battle, whereas Trump was able to carve out his own position on the electorate without spending an enormous amount of money. And so I think that this is really untested. Aside from Michael Bloomberg and the Michigan presidential primary on March 10th, what else have you seen in campaign spending over the last, let's say, 14 months uh, during, let's say, 2019 and into this year? Anything different, uh, novel about this compared to the past? Yeah, I think one of the uh, important notes in the, is that in the legislature, uh, independent expenditure committees, what they, the so-called leadership PACs that legislators run to distribute money to their fellow legislators, are becoming increasingly powerful. Um, both uh, Lee Chatfield, the Speaker of the House, and Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky raised uh, record amounts for an off year. Uh, Lee Chatfield and his three uh, majority funds raised nearly a million dollars, which is uh, more than some of the PACs representing the uh, Democratic caucus raised in total. Wow. So, in other words, uh, Jason Wentworth, who is a second-term state representative, a Republican, is viewed as being the heir apparent to Lee Chatfield. Does he have a leadership pack, and is he amassing money that you can see right now leading up to the vote at the end of this year if the Republicans retain the majority that he would become the speaker? Yeah, you know, I think that in that regard, uh, you could say that he's been anointed in a sense is that uh, from Speaker Chatfield has sort of given him very large contribution dollars from his own leadership pack to Wentworth. And uh, I think a, 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 a sign that uh, his ascendancy is near is that he just opened his second leadership pack. 
Um, and in large part, the purposes of these is that these independent expenditure committees can donate 10 times the amount an individual can campaign committees, which campaign committees are what uh, candidates use individually to fund their election. And um, by having a second one, you can essentially skirt contribution limits because you can hit the maximum contribution limit twice. Well, aside from the contribution limits, is this transparent? I mean, do we know where the money that's coming to Jason Wentworth is coming from or not? So we do to the extent that his, that we know who his donors are. Now, if you're getting uh, if you're getting donations from organizations that aren't disclosing their funds, then you don't. But um, luckily, these uh, these vehicles themselves do uh, allow um, some degree of transparency in that they have to disclose who their donors are. But it's the question of knowing who the donors are and where that money is coming from is an entirely different story. And, of course, I mean, the fact that you can have multiple leadership hacks sort of illustrates that contribution limits are only as uh, as much of a hindrance as you want them to be. What you're telling us, I think, is very interesting. It raises a question in my mind. I don't know whether there's an answer to it. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, is Jason Wentworth anointed, quote-unquote, by either the current speaker, Lee Chatfield, or maybe interest groups or others who say, okay, we think out of the possibilities to become the next speaker, Jason Wentworth looks like the best bet, the strongest candidate. So we're going to start giving him money to help him achieve that goal of being speaker. Or uh, has Jason Wentworth on his own over some period of time decided, you know, I want to be speaker. So I'm going to start collecting money and then I'm going to show Lee Chatfield and these interest groups and everybody else. I'm the man. I can raise money. I've got the money. I've done better than any of my colleagues in my caucus. And I'm going to be elected. What do you think? You know, I think that it's a little bit of both. Uh, you have to show the, the powers that be in Lansing that you can control the caucus and have a portfolio of interests that align with the interests of uh, individual special interests. And when you can do that, uh, you can really show that you're the man for the job. Wow. Look, you know, we're barely scratching the surface here, Simon Schuster, uh, and we have to cut it short. Really appreciate your being on. You've done a great job. Great insights. We'll get you back at some point. Thank you very much, Simon Schuster of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Always a pleasure. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the other line with us Jonathan Osting, who is a political reporter for Bridge Magazine. Before that, he was with the Detroit News Lansing Bureau. Jonathan Osting, thanks for being with us on The Political Insider. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to talk to you about this presidential primary coming up on March 10th. I mean, first of all, from the standpoint of a veteran observer of Michigan politics, uh, what do you think is going on right now? Who's up? Who's down? Who's likely to win? What about the money being spent? So forth and so on. Yeah, sure. Well, I think that <laughs> the money being spent makes this a really fascinating <laughs> primary. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, a couple candidates start to set up traditional ground games here, uh, but none in the way that Mike Bloomberg has done. He's got offices all across the state. He's spending millions of dollars on television commercials. Uh, and yet, 
we haven't really seen him on a ballot yet in other states, so we really have no idea what to expect. Um, so obviously that's going to be a really fascinating dynamic. Um, beyond that, uh, I think, you know, sort of the shape of the race in Michigan uh, is really going to come into focus uh, in the next couple of days with South Carolina's uh, primary this weekend, followed by uh, the wide swath of Super Tuesday primaries on March 3. Uh, and that's when candidates are really going to turn their attention to Michigan. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has already announced he's going to visit Michigan on Super Tuesday uh, that night. Uh, you know, as results are rolling in, he'll be here in Michigan um, setting up shop and getting ready for the week ahead, uh, and also signaling that no matter what happens on Super Tuesday, he's going to be campaigning in Michigan regardless. Right, and we shouldn't forget that uh, Bernie Sanders is no slouch when it comes to spending money. I mean, doesn't he have 10 staffers hired in the state? And, uh, you know, he's got a big bankroll, and he's going to spend money, not Mike Bloomberg-type money, but he will be competitive in that respect, whereas Pete Buttigieg and some of these other candidates – even Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, uh, doesn't look to me like they've got the resources to really compete here. Yeah, I mean, Buttigieg and Warren do have a couple people here, and they've been here early. Um, I've, in fact, seen door knockers for Warren in my neighborhood already. Uh, but, yeah, um, Bernie uh, not only has, you know, some institutional support, he's still got this whole grassroots army that really rose up in 2016 and has been reactivated now. So sort of, uh, you know, like Trump on the GOP side, he's got some real fervent supporters who he doesn't even have to pay to get out and work for him. And uh, those folks are definitely active. So, yeah, of course, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, he won Michigan's primary four years ago, and he's got a lot of strength uh, heading into this, uh, regardless of how he does on Super Tuesday. Right. Now, you have written in Bridge Magazine about some other stuff going on on Tuesday, March 10th, that I'm not sure a lot of voters are even aware of uh, when they go to vote or, in fact, a lot of them, as you know, are voting absentee now in greater numbers than ever before because of the passage of ballot proposal three back in 2018. So absentee voting is already up something like 70 percent over four years ago in Michigan. So some people have gotten these ballots and they found a whole bunch of other stuff on the ballot in addition to the presidential primary. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. People definitely, you know, think of this only as a presidential primary election, but in fact, it's a local ballot proposal election as well. Um, not every community um, will have proposals on their ballot, but a whole lot of them do. Um, data we got from the Secretary of State's office and analyzed uh, shows that there are at least 245 uh, local ballot proposals that will wow. be decided uh, in the March primary, and at least 220 of those uh, deal with uh, taxes or millages or assessments, you know, some form of a request for voters to either continue or uh, raise their own taxes to pay for local services like road repairs, public safety, school building maintenance. Um, One tiny little upper peninsula town uh, that I uh, have talked to local officials at, They've got nine different 
uh, millage or assessment questions on their ballot on Isn't March that, 10. Isn't that uh, Breen Township? Uh, that's and... almost as many Demo- Democratic presidential candidates. As wow. Yeah, that's like Breen Township and Dickinson County and the UP? Yeah, yeah Breen Township. Uh, it's got less than 500 residents, but they'll see a, a smattering of local ballot proposals and some county measures and even a tri-county measure uh, as well, all uh, dealing with taxes. Well, Jonathan Osting, let me ask you, is this just accidental? Is it coincidental that all these proposals are on the ballot at the same time? Or do you think that the people who are, could be school districts, they could be municipalities, have decided, you know what, this is a great time to get this proposal passed that we want to put on the ballot because Republicans who generally don't uh, – like tax hikes, <laughs> uh, don't really have anything to vote for in this presidential primary. Donald Trump is basically unopposed, and there's all this activity on the Democratic side, so mainly Democrats who would be more likely to support these proposals are going to be the electorate, and that gives these proposals a chance to win. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, the local officials I spoke to offered, you know, a variety of reasons. But, I mean, just looking at the overwhelming volume of proposals on this that will be on on the March 10 ballot, yeah, I suspect, you know, the political dynamics are certainly part of the consideration uh, for local governments or officials who decide to put measures on the ballot. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Trump isn't facing any real opposition, so there's a likelihood there's going to be a very low Republican turnout as opposed to a heavily contested Democratic primary, um, which will probably draw more voters. So, um, And those voters are generally more amenable to tax increases, especially at the local level. People in general tend to support local increases a little more than statewide because they trust their local government a little more. Uh, now, there are some other explanations. For instance, uh, you know, uh, locals often will try and piggyback on a statewide election so they don't have to pay the cost themselves. And getting on this early March ballot means if uh, the proposal doesn't go well, it gets shot down. They could put it back on the ballot again later this year in a subsequent election. So, um, you know, there is there are uh, other reasons to go for the March ballot. But, uh, yeah, I suspect some political motivation. Yeah. These ballot proposals have been doing pretty well generally over the last couple of years anyway, regardless of a presidential primary. So it'll be interesting to compare the passage rate percentage and statistics after the March 10th primary compared to, let's say, elections last year at various times or in 2018. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, that would be a very interesting. Uh, God bless the individual who decides to go through all 245 ballot proposals <laughs> and do that assessment. I'm not sure it's going to be me, uh, to be honest with you. But, um, yeah, I mean, obviously uh, that, that would be fascinating to see how well they do. I mean, I talked to, you know, Steve Mitchell, a, a well-known GOP uh, pollster and political consultant, and, you know, he said uh, basically, you know, the opportunity to pass a millage doesn't get any better than this. So, uh, you know, he's expecting uh, that a lot of these things are going to pass. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, you've given some great insight. Jonathan Osting, political reporter for Bridge Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Bill.
You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Representative Mike Mueller. He is a Republican from Linden. He represents the 51st House District, and I believe that is the cities of Fenton and Linden. And he's got a couple of villages, uh, Holly, I think, and six townships in Genesee County and three townships in Oakland County, uh, northwestern Oakland County. Is that correct? Representative uh, Mike Mueller. Yes, it is, sir. Yep, yep. That's that's the uh, the area I represent plus the uh, village of Goodrich up Goodrich, there. Goodrich, yeah, Goodrich, absolutely. Well, look, you have introduced a bill that you say will fund county and city road commissions and decrease funding for the state's highway fund without increasing taxes or state debt. What's going on here? What? Uh, is happening because everybody is concerned about fix the damn roads, but the bigger problem is how do you pay for it? Correct. It's House Bill 5489. Um, basically, I was um, looking at you know the funding of PA 51, and um, I just kind of took a pragmatic approach to it. And you know, when you look, I believe it's uh, Section 11, the funding for the bottom three buckets, as they say, the 39.1 percent to the state trunk line. Um, and then 39.1 to the to the local um, county road commissions, and then the remainder going to cities and villages. The majority of our roads, you know, people travel, you know, from their house to you know the church, to the schools, to the, the post office. They're in pretty bad shape, and so I said, why don't we just flip these number around, these uh, percentages around for a little bit to see if we can have increased uh, revenue flowing to our local communities. So I changed the uh, formulas to decrease the state trunk line to 21.8%, increase the county uh, funding to 43.1%, and cities and villages to 35.1%, which, you know, it was a 14-point increase to the cities and villages, but it it basically increases their funding by 58%. When you have 120,000 total miles of road and Governor Bond's $3.5 billion, it only goes to highways, which are you know ninety six thousand or ninety six hundred miles of road, and you know three point five billion bonding. You're you're fixing. She can only touch the ninety six hundred miles of road, and that costs you know a million dollars a day. You know to pay off that debt. Um, with changing the bottom three buckets, it doesn't open up PA fifty one, but what it does is give the locals more money, and in my opinion, that's more accountability because if you're at your local <clears throat> in your local neighborhoods. And you can't drive on your roads because they're beat up. You can go down to the city hall, you can go to the township hall, you can go to county commissioner meetings and talk to your local officials about it. So there's a little bit more accountability. Um, you don't have to navigate, you know, through the state government and you know, deal with the Department of Transportation. And I know the, I know some of the critics will say, you know, well, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul, but in all reality, Peter just got a, a pretty good-sized Christmas bonus. Yeah, and I think it's time for our local roads to get get the get the care that they need. Yeah, absolutely. Because, as you say, the bonding proposal of the governor would go almost entirely toward, you know, state roads, which are a very small percentage compared to the overall road mileage in Michigan, most of which is local and locals are not getting anything out of this. So you you would kind of redress that balance, right? Right, and, and it doesn't mean that it has to stay forever. You know, it, it's a, it's something that we can, you know, discuss. And, you know, I'm sure our locals would like to have some more money to fix the roads. I mean, I traveled last week, you know, all the way up to Marquette and to Iron Mountain on, you know, state roads. And 
I didn't run into any problems, but when I drive to my local post office here in Linden, you know, the front end of my car gets beat, you know, beat up pretty bad. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was a deputy for 19 years. So, you know, I traveled the uh, local roads, um, you know, 12 hours a day on my shift. And, you know, those, those roads are in, in desperate repair. And, you know, I understand, you know, the MDOT, you know, likes to say that, and it's true, you know, 53% or so of the state's total traffic uses the highways, but 100% of the taxpayers use local roads to get to the highways in addition to, like I said, going to the grocery store, to church, school, going to the gym, you know, going to the parks. So, you know, if we, you know, if our cars are getting beat up before we even get to the highway, it seems like it's a little bit, you know, backwards. Representative Mueller, do you get the impression that maybe Governor Whitmer actually might like your idea? Because she could say, you know what, um, I bonded because I couldn't get cooperation anywhere else to try and fix the damn roads. But I realize that it's top heavy with improvements and extra revenue for state trunk lines, but nothing for locals. And here, Representative Mueller has ridden to the rescue with something that will uh, redress the imbalance a little bit. She might like it. Well, you know, I, I'm, I hope so. You know, I'm not here to criticize anybody. <laughs> you know, I was, I was not in politics before. Um, you know, my background is law enforcement, you know, farming and a veteran. So, you know, the governor did what she needed to do. I'm not here to criticize her. I'm here to find a solution. And if we can, you know, work together to do that, that would be great. I mean, you know, we need to, we need to fix the local roads. And that's, like I said, that's what our taxpayers want. That's what they deserve. And they, they don't need their local roads being beat up. And they need to know that the money that they already pay is going to the road. And I think a lot of times, you know, people get bamboozled, basically, because they pay taxes and they think that <clears throat> their tax money is going to the roads. But then when they have a local millage to fix the roads, it doesn't pass because they say, well, I'm already paying enough taxes for our roads. Well, this formula has been in place since 19. 19- 51. And, you know, our state has grown. The interstates were put in in the 50s and the secondary roads or local roads were put in to, you know, expand commerce and tourism and that kind of thing. And and we need to maintain them. I mean, it costs a lot to build them, but now we're in the state where we just need to maintain them. And if we can flip the formula for just a few years, you know, I'm open to suggestions. You know, like I said, I'm here for solutions. I'm not here to criticize. I'm here to take a pragmatic approach to fix our infrastructure that needs to be fixed, and we need to work together to get it done. Representative Mueller, your bill, House bill, you say it's 5489, is that right? That is correct. And it's in the House Committee on Transportation. I mean, do you get any sense that the chairman of the committee is going to bring it up? And do you plan to talk to Governor Whitmer or people on her staff or from MDOT or somebody in the Whitmer administration about this and see if you can get their support in committee if it's brought up? Well, I, I have talked to uh, Cheryl Malley. Um, he's going to be looking at some dates to uh, possibly have a hearing on this bill. Um, I have sent letters out to, um, you know, the city of Detroit, some of the larger road commissions um, up to Marquette. So that way um, everybody in the state, the road commissions from, you know, the major cities, the rural areas, all are notified of what this bill does and the intentions of this bill, because we know how this thing, how things work in Lansing. There's always unintended consequences, but um, the intention of this is to, you know, get everybody on board. This isn't a partisan issue. This is a issue that um, everybody needs to work on together. You know, and I have spoke to colleagues from, you know, 
on both sides of the aisle and from different areas because when I sent the letters out to like the mayor of Detroit, you know, I had my staff email every representative in that area and I've talked to him and said, Hey, you know, just to let you know I sent this out. Um, this is what I'm trying to do if you're not aware of it because, you know, you, you build these relationships because once you build relationships, you can get things done a lot better if you're not knocking heads. Right. You mentioned Representative O'Malley. This would be Representative Jack O'Malley, Republican of Lake Ann on the northwestern part of the state. He's chairman of the Transportation Committee. He's had the idea of passing legislation to give local units of government the option to raise a local gas tax to attack this problem of diminished revenue or not enough revenue for local roads. What about that? What do you think about that idea, and do you think that could happen as well? Well, you know, initially I was in favor of that. However, you know, just like I mentioned previously, there's always unintended consequences. And when you do this job, you know, you have to look out for your district, but you also have to look out for the rest of the, you know, community in the, in the entire state. Um, my district is unique is that it borders um, Shiawassee County to the west, Livingston County to the south, and I'm in Oakland County and then Lapeer County. So that would actually have a negative effect on my business owners and gas station owners in my district because if they raise tax to locally, everybody would go outside my district to, to fill up their tank. Um, you know, it's, I think it was done for um, mediation and trying to come up with a solution to meet halfway. Okay, listen, that is a great explanation of what you're trying to do. It makes a lot of sense to me. We'll find out what happens with it. This is Representative Mike Mueller, Republican of Linden, 51st House District. Thank you, Representative Mueller, for being on The Political Insider. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Same to you. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Senator Mike McDonald of the 10th Senate District. That is Sterling Heights, the city of Sterling Heights. And Macomb Township, and I think a major chunk of Clinton Township. Is that correct, Senator McDonald? Yes, it is. Uh, Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. And, yeah, thanks for Joining us, look, I want to ask you about a subject that still is hard for me to get my arms around, but you have been extremely active in this. You are co-chair of a bipartisan Michigan Legislative Aerospace and Defense Caucus, and you recently had a meeting with your counterpart in the House, Representative Joe Tate, Democrat of Detroit, uh, to discuss uh, defense and aerospace infrastructure and industries in Michigan. And then something also happened uh, this past week that was kind of interesting, and that is that a satellite launch facility was announced up in the Alpena area. And I'm just asking, is this all connected or not? What's going on? Uh, Yes, this is all absolutely uh, connected. Excuse me. And, um, you know, uh, Representative <clears throat> Tate has been a great partner in the Aerospace and Defense Caucus. It's, it's sort of shocking that we didn't have an Aerospace and Defense Caucus because if anybody knows the history of Detroit and of Michigan, we saved the entire world in World War II by building the tanks and the planes for the war effort. So it's a natural fit for Michigan. 
basically what it boils down to is I, I had some, some meetings with the Pentagon, and they asked me point blank. They go, what, what do you want, Senator, to achieve with your Aerospace and Defense Caucus? And I said that I would like Michigan and Detroit, but particularly Michigan as a whole, to be the aerospace, defense, innovation, technology, economic driver of the entire country, which it was at one point. And his, his response to me, one of the information folks there, is, he says, when we think of everything you just said, we don't think of any of those things for Michigan. Wow. And it's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame, but, but it's not a reality. The reality is with the auto industry, the manufacturing background we have, with our unbelievable universities that we have, we should be all these things. We just have to start marketing ourselves and branding ourselves as these things. So when you talk about something like launching satellites, this is going to be a statewide initiative. The, uh, the Stama situation, I want to give a shout-out to Senator Stama and Senator Shirky and the Lieutenant Governor for being unbelievable supporters of this in a bipartisan way. It just makes too much sense for Michigan. Where the This is the horizontal. There will be a vertical announcement soon as well. Then there will be a command center announcement. But when you look at Michigan, and I know I've said this before, our, our geography has an advantage over all the other states in the country because we have all the advantages of the coastal states with none of their weaknesses. So a country, uh, uh, sorry, a state like Florida would, re- would reach out and say, hey, we can launch satellites in Florida, but what we cannot do that Michigan can do is we can't build anything. So all of a sudden you have this opportunity now to create an entire ecosystem around this, this opportunity. It's cheaper to launch the satellites here. It's a perfect partner for the defense and the auto industry because, you know, guess what, the auto industry whether we like it or not, wants to do autonomous vehicles. These vehicles will not work without these satellites. So then you throw out the, the, the real gold mine of this whole initiative is, well, if you're going to launch satellites here, why with our manufacturing base here would you not build them here? And now all of a sudden we can do things that California and Florida and Texas, they cannot do. So a lot of the things that I mentioned to the Pentagon started to become a reality. It's sort of a reimagining, rebranding of our state. We're the place kids want to go, and we're the place kids don't want to leave. Yeah. When you had your meeting in Sterling Heights last week, what was the reaction of the participants? I mean, supposedly, as you say, there are 280 companies certified as aerospace manufacturers with another 600 Michigan companies in support. And the aerospace industry has, like, a $1.2 billion impact on Michigan's economy, right? So how do they feel things are going? Uh, Cranes just put out an article that aerospace is Michigan's sleeping giant. It's the future of our economy to partner with the auto industry. The reaction of the and, – and I want to give a, a shout-out to all the state representatives and, and senators, and uh, particularly Gilchrist and, and General Paul Rogers growing up – but. General Rogers, basically, his statement was, this is long overdue. Michigan needed an aerospace and defense caucus a long time ago, and we're finally starting to sort of give ourselves more of a national presence than we've had in the past with with this initiative. Do you get the impression that any other states have the same idea you do and that these other participants in your caucus do? Uh, is this like a mad scramble by 50 states for the same thing, or do you think you're ahead of many other states in trying to get something going in this regard that would advantage Michigan compared to other states? Uh, every state would give anything to have this. Uh, they just simply don't have the advantages we have. 
the big kicker for us is the focus on the private-public partnership. Uh, a lot of the other states who have attempted this in the past, first of all, didn't have the geographical opportunity to do this. They did, but they didn't have the private interest. The, the big driver of this is the private in, interest and the money that this brings to the, these different companies because they can turn a profit by launching the emission because it's cheaper. Not only is it cheaper, if you look at it from uh, having to transport these satellites, if you can build them in Michigan, it's exponentially cheaper. And it's that private interest that's going to drive a lot of these initiatives, similar to what it did with the auto industry at the turn of the century. Senator Mike McDonald, what needs to happen in the legislature or with the cooperation of the Whitmer administration? You mentioned uh, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, so that's a great sign. But what needs to happen legislatively to boost this thing along? You say you're getting a lot of uh, backup and support from fellow senators and state representatives, but is that just because they're nodding their heads and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm all in? But do they really understand what might be entailed by Michigan government getting involved or legislation being passed? Is there money involved? Are there appropriations? That kind of thing. A lot of this will be privately driven. And from the state perspective, we just need to act as if we want this. And, and we need to understand that economic diversity is the one thing that our state's missing. You can talk about roads, you can talk about budget, you can talk about all these things. It all boils down to we need more money flowing into this state. And as long as our kids are leaving, as long as we're, we're, we've got these great universities and we're training kids to leave, we're never going to have that money. We, we need to remarket why our state is great. It's great because we build things. We, we are the, the heart of manufacturing in the United States of America. It just takes a shot in the arm. So to turn Michigan into a space state, now we become the attractive state that kids want to be at. Now we become the place where all the good jobs are. We become, this is like a Henry Ford 2 and 3.0. This will reinvigorate our economy. And because of that, everybody buys in. There's nothing not to buy into, whether you're the executive branch, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican. How can you argue jobs, good jobs, high-paying jobs? your constituents. You can. Yeah, everything you say makes total sense. Are there any bills before the legislature this year on which action might be necessary to boost this along? I think from a policy standpoint, it would be good to look at the states who have been successful at this, and that has not, we've not done that quite yet. Uh, the little bit of money we appropriate for the studies was a good start, but there will definitely need to be more, more of that in the future, and that's the beauty of having somebody like Senator Stamas and, and a lot of these people helping because they can help us out with a lot of those initiatives. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have their support on us. As you look ahead, how long do you think it's going to take to get Michigan into the place that you think it should be with respect to uh, aerospace and defense? Well, we want to be launching the satellites by 2022. Now, if you look at it from a branding perspective, something like the Air Force Research Lab, the defense industry loves Michigan because it's it's not vulnerable. We're in the middle of the country. So once we start doing these bigger initiatives and we start becoming more of a national presence within the Pentagon, they'll start companies will start to flock here. Like like the Air Force Research Lab is by Wright Patterson in Ohio because of the significance of that base. Now, wherever the Air Force Research Lab goes, they give out $3 million grants to companies who can help the Air Force. So now, say Michigan becomes the heart of all this. It becomes it could be a part of even a 
subset of the space force, or we're, you know, because we're the ones driving these initiatives, companies are going to flock here because of the opportunity. And where the companies go, the people will go, the workforce will go. But it all boils down to rethinking why Michigan's great. We know it's great, but we got to start selling it that way, keeping our kids here. We, you, I'll give you an example. U of M has one of the largest aerospace schools in the whole country. But 80% of our kids leave and go to California. Right, I understand. That's the kind of thing we right, need to stop. We, we need to end that, make Michigan the attractive place to be and the place people want to be. Absolutely. Look, I wish we could talk about this longer, but we will again. We've talked to Senator Mike McDonald before about this, and we'll talk to him about it again as things go on. Thank you so much, Senator Mike McDonald, Republican of Sterling Heights. Appreciate Thank you so all you much. Do, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back next week.